Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we come to John 19. We'll start with verse 6. We've been going rather slowly through this trial of the Lord before Pilate. For Pilate asks many profound questions. He asks more than he knows. What accusation do you bring against this man? It's a good question, and many people today still have thoughts and wonders about Jesus. Who is he, and what has he done? Um, What is truth? Are you a king then? Where are you from? Well, today we come to another question. Do you not know that I have power over you to crucify you or to release you? Well, in these uh, questions, we find a great deal of truth, as our Lord here only replies briefly, but faithfully giving that uh, good testimony before Pilate, as Paul writes. Well, let's read from John 19, starting in verse 6. I'll read to you down to verse 15. Therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, and they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Let's pray once more together. What is truth? Pilate has well asked, but did not know the answer. We come once again to learn of him who was not only the truth, but also the way and the life. And we pray that even as he is our way to you, Heavenly Father, that you would give to us a deeper understanding of his calling as Messiah, his reign over the earth, his faithful witness, which we likewise seek to carry forward, and his hope that is ours as well. We pray it in his name. Amen. One of our, history, one of our history's most uh, thorny questions is the relationship between God and country. Uh, uh, Christians today have various views and disagreements on this matter. Everyone certainly agrees with the Lord here that all power 
or better, all authority comes from above. Well, that much being admitted, we then have all these practical difficulties. Some people say that Christians may have no business trying to pass righteous laws. Others saying, no, this is exactly what is required of us. Some say that Christians have no business uh, involving themselves in a worldly government. Some say that Christians have a particular obligation to involve themselves, for we have learned the will of the ruler of nations. Some say, because God is supreme, earthly rulers should never be resisted. Others say, because God is supreme, they must be resisted, at least passively, whenever they stray from what is right. Well, the Bible does say, uh, and uh, the Lord here testifies the same, the powers that be are ordained of God. That's clear. But what does this mean, practically speaking, for us living in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people in this republic? It's a difficult question. Now, in this passage, we will consider three points and conclude by seeking to apply them to our public life today. We'll see, first, that Jesus testified to the sovereign authority of God. Second, that Jesus testifies against the sins of rulers, and third, that Jesus' testimony is always proven true. And then we'll make some application to ourselves, as I say. But first, Jesus testifies to the sovereign authority of God. Verse 10, Pilate asks our question of the day. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you would have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Well, as I said, this is not really controversial among Christians, but neither, I think, is it well appreciated because it is a very strong statement, uh, first, of God's sovereign providential rule over all the affairs of this world. That is to say, no matter whether a ruler comes to power through election, as Roman magistrates did, or by conquest, as Julius Caesar did, or by birth, as Tiberius Caesar, then ruling, did, or by appointment, like Pontius Pilate did. It is ultimately God who sets people in office, whomever he pleases. Do you believe that? When God was going to humble Nebuchadnezzar, he announced to him and his court ahead of time, through his prophet, that what he was going to do, in order, he says, that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whomever he will. That verse actually repeated four times to two different emperors in that book. The Bible says... He removes kings and raises up kings. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, says Psalm 75. The Lord again says through Jeremiah, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, and by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I have given it to whomever seemed proper to me. You'll say, well, even evil rulers? Oh, yes, we just read a few minutes earlier about Pharaoh where Paul quoted God's word to Pharaoh, saying, you know, I have raised you up for this very purpose, 
that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Exodus 9. Well, even Pontius Pilate, wicked man that he was, could have no power, no authority at all unless it had been given him from above. A very strong statement of God's sovereign rule. Now, did you say, but, but, but does this justify their evil actions? Oh, no, the very reverse. God is calling all those rulers I just made, named to account because he put them there, and he is the one who will call them to account. They have received authority from God, and they will give an answer to God. And we'll see that very clearly in a few minutes. But Pilate's conscience here is struck. He's afraid. On the one hand, it's telling him what he ought to do. He ought to do justice. And then there's this matter of, is this man the son of God? And he's struck because all of a sudden now there's another authority, one that's over him in view. It doesn't matter what the people want. His conscience is saying, forget the Jewish rulers who are demanding Christ's execution. You must do what's right, regardless of what all the people want or demand. You are not appointed to please the people. You are appointed to do what is right, and that by God. Or we could think of the Nuremberg trials in which the Germans said, hey, we were only following orders. We were just obeying our constitutional ruler in the law of the land. And at that trial, the chief prosecutor replied, quote, even rulers are, just as the Lord Chief Justice Koch said to King James, under God and the law. Gentlemen, is there not a higher law? So it was in 1 Samuel when King Saul said that no one may eat until they had won their battle against the Philistines and unknowingly, not hearing that, Jonathan, his son, ate honey. Saul was enraged when he found out and he ordered his army to put his son to death and they refused to obey Saul's command and rebuked the king and saved Jonathan's life. Or you might think of how Queen Jezebel's chief official named Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly. When Jezebel ordered God's prophets all to be killed, Obadiah feared, feared the Lord, and he hid a hundred of them in a cave and provided them food and water. So there is a higher law. Uh, it is the responsibility of every magistrate as one appointed, not by his superior or even by the people, but by God himself to do right by God. To resist tyranny, to protect the life, liberty, and property of the citizens they were appointed to serve, whether they're in the army, whether they're working for the king, uh, whether they are the supreme ruler of the land, it matters not. They are under the law of their superior, God himself. And this is an important check on tyranny when people, and especially under magistrates, recognize that the rulers are not above the law. Governments, unless there are checks and balances, we know in this country, tend to accrue more and more power. And Jesus here bears witness to Caesar's government that man's authority is not ultimate. God's is. Remember I told you about the Roman coin at this time on the uh, fr front of the denarius. It said, a uh, picture of Tiberius, it said, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, son of God. 
are on the back, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Well, <clears throat> Jesus flatly contradicts Caesar's claims to ultimate divine sovereignty. And Jesus thereby delivers us from the tyranny of worldly kingdoms. Jesus Christ is made king of kings and lord of lords and the ruler over the princes of the earth, Revelation 1, and therefore, point one, Jesus testifies to the sovereign authority of God. Yes, even over the kingdom of Caesar. Not just a providential rule, but a moral rule. The sovereign authority of God over the kingdoms of this world. Second, Jesus testifies against the sins of rulers. Jesus testifies against the sins of rulers. Very gently, I admit, but Jesus continues then in verse 11 saying... Therefore, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. And I used to think that Jesus was speaking about Judas, but several writers had pointed out to me that Jesus says, no, delivered me to you. That is Caiaphas who delivered him to Pilate on behalf of the rulers of Israel who yet demand his death. Now, to say that uh, Pilate is guilty of a greater sin, excuse me, to say that Caiaphas is guilty of a greater sin means that Pilate is guilty of a lesser sin. Caiaphas, the head of the supreme Sanhedrin of Israel, the rulers of the Jews, did what he did with full knowledge. Pilate, the representative of Rome, had only just met Jesus and knew very little. The Sanhedrin wanted him destroyed. Pilate wanted to release him and ultimately gave in to the threats of the crowd. But in both cases, the rulers of Israel and Rome were committing a great injustice, to say the least. Uh, the, the Jews, the greater sin, Pilate, the lesser by implication. But Jesus is testifying here to the sins of the rulers. In this, he's continuing the prophetic tradition of speaking truth to power, and reminding rulers that they have a ruler themselves to whom they must give account. Daniel, you remember, appealed to Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his sins and to do rightly, show mercy to the poor. Perhaps there will be a lengthening of your reign. He strongly confronted Belshazzar for his spiritual and moral negligence. Jonah and Nahum testified against the sins of the mighty Assyrian kingdom and so forth. John the Baptist decrying Herod's sin of taking his brother's wife, for which he lost his head. Paul speaking with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, about righteousness and temperance and self-control and the judgment to come until they trembled and says, uh, we'll hear you again later. So Christians in every age have a role in education and confrontation. We have to declare God's will and uh, sometimes doing that rather unwillingly ourselves, nevertheless, according to the will of God, who has a word for the rulers. We must obey our rulers, but not necessarily agree with them. We are to submit to them, at least as far as we can, and call them to submit to God as we are able. Now, somebody will ask, wait a minute, aren't we just called to preach the gospel? Well, we are called to preach the gospel, but we're also told to have no unfellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay, check. I'm not done. But rather even reprove them, uh, rebuke them. 
we must speak all that the Word of God speaks. We have many, many good illustrations of this in the Bible. Evangelism is the church's means for addressing society's ultimate problems. And as soon as we forget this, we will fall into the trap of social gospel or the more modern term, social justice. The great problems of this evil world stem from the evil of a human heart and alienation from God. And the only permanent remedy for sin is the gospel that changes us from within and makes us dear children of God. So while it's good for Christians um, to be elected to public office and for moral legislation to be passed, uh, we must keep in mind the limits of those activities. Such things may help, but they will not turn the people of our nation from an evil course. Only the gospel can do that. However, it is important to see that the prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself, testify against the sins of rulers, reminding them of a higher law, and therefore that they will be brought to account. Now, this was a large part of how our church started, um, with the Covenanters first refusing to accept the king as the head of the Church of Scotland and suffering greatly for it, and the associates then uh, drawing the line as the lords claimed the prerogative of patronage, the Scottish lords, lairds, claiming the right of patronage to appoint the ministers whom they pleased in the congregations. So, two ruptures in, within a century in Scotland, merging together, and here it is, the ARP Church today. We could think of the words of Andrew Melville to James VI of Scotland, the king, later James I of England, King James, right? 1596. Sir, he says, we humbly reverence your majesty in public, but since we have occasion to be with you in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and to you. And therefore, sir, as in various times before, so now again, I must tell you that there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus and his kingdom the Kirk, whose subject King James VI is, and whose, in whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a head, nor a lord, but a member. Uh, that got him banished, by the way. Um, or to give you a contemporary illustration of this, I saw some videos, courageous videos of James White and uh, Jeff Durbin and some others from their church in Arizona at the Arizona Town Council, uh, sorry, at the Phoenix Town Council, asking the members to make Phoenix a sanctuary city for the unborn. Um, the councilmen, they told them, have received their authority from God, point one. And they are responsible to God for the life or death of their citizens, as may be. Point two. How did it turn out? Well, they weren't banished like Melville, but as so often happened to the prophets and apostles and Jesus himself here, they were not heeded. But nevertheless, it didn't stop them from saying the truth that needed to be said. You are not the ultimate rulers. There is a higher law. The friends of Caesar, like Pilate, you notice are always afraid. 
Pilate here afraid he might lose his position, afraid of what the Jews will do, afraid of what his superior might exact upon him. The friends of Christ, no fear at all. David, who had many enemies seeking his life, was able to sing Psalm 56, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? All who fear the Lord are free, you see. And Christ gives us boldness before kings. Jesus himself came into the world to testify to the truth, though the world hated him because he testified that its deeds were evil. But Jesus here speaks with calm authority, not with the desperation of a man trying to save himself from execution, and not even in any particularly accusatory tone, you notice. He is confident. He is positive. He, he reminds them who the true ruler is and what the sins of those rulers under him, in fact, are. Pilate had boasted that he had the power, that he had the power to set Jesus free. In fact, Jesus was the one who could set him free, if he would but listen. And in that moment, who would have expected the reversal? But this is a part of the biblical witness and testimony. Jesus not only testified to God's sovereign rule, he testified against the sins of rulers. Third, Jesus' testimony is always proven true. It's always proven true. Verse 12, um, though Pilate sought to release Jesus, the Jews cried out, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And there was a real and substantial threat behind these words. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Pilate had already by this point been called to Rome once and threatened by Tiberius after some of his citizens went and protested. And Tiberius, for his part, Caesar was known to exact ruthless punishment. Pilate was now living in fear of Caesar, living in fear that the Jews would report something else to Rome and so he had to be careful not to offend or anger them if he wanted to keep his position in the kingdom. So here's Pilate's dilemma. He could either acquit, was plainly an innocent man who was claiming to be a king from heaven, or Pilate could choose to secure his place in the kingdom of Caesar by condemning an innocent man to death. Well, when put that way, there was no question for Pilate if your chief allegiance in this world is to seeking your security and success in the kingdoms of this world, then Jesus is a profound threat to you. For Jesus insists ultimate allegiance to him that outranks every other allegiance. Pilate sees the Jews' hypocrisy and taunts them he taunts them, shall I crucify your king? They reply, we have no king but Caesar. It's a deep irony that I'll explain in a minute. And so Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Now John, writing this book so many years later, would have expected his readers to be very familiar with the outcome of all these things. And what became of these people? There's a wretched end 
to this story. Jesus testified to the sovereign authority of God. He testified against the sins of rulers. And God proved him right, as God almost immediately called them to account. It doesn't always happen quite so swiftly, you know, but in this case, these Jewish rulers who claim their only allegiance is to Caesar. They say that, of course, so that they could be free of Jesus and establish their own authority. But how did it turn out for them? Servitude, destruction, and death. Just a few years later, they violently rebelled against Caesar, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The temple dismantled stone by stone. Their city burned, their leaders crucified, thousands taken into slavery, and some 1.1 million Jews perished, if Josephus' numbers are correct. The desire to establish their own authority by the kingdoms of this world in wickedness came immediately back upon them. And Jesus' word was proved true. And what about Pilate? Well, Pilate was also willing to sacrifice Jesus in order to find security and success in the worldly kingdom of Caesar. How did it go for him? Well, in 36 AD, Pilate was removed from office and had to stand trial in Rome, where he was condemned for his brutality and then we hear nothing about him. There's no certain certainty regarding his fate after this. Eusebius, the church historian in the 4th century, records that Pilate was ordered to take his own life by the very authorities that he served. How's that for siding with Caesar rather than Jesus? Hmm. The point is this. In his sovereignty over history, God demonstrates his righteous reign, and brings to nothing the false promises of worldly kingdoms. Not usual that it comes quite so swiftly and quite so miserably. Judgment doesn't always come even in this life, but come it does. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus' testimony is always proven true. Point three, sometimes that justice takes quite a long time. We, we, we read of the events in Israel and the terrible sins and the protracted delay and the warnings and the prophet after prophet after prophet that's sent to warn the people and they harden and harden and harden their hearts as though no judgment will ever come. Well, the wheels of God justice, what is the saying? They may grow sl grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine, something like that. Jesus' testimony is always proven true. The kingdom of Rome demanded that no allegiance could be placed over it. Caesar himself was worshipped as a god, and no other power, spiritual or otherwise, was over him. That meant that every authority had either to be under his rule or at least in some area of life that could never be challenged. But in either case, Caesar was supreme. Would you rather be a friend of Caesar or of Christ, a friend of Christ in those days? Well, we learn that every other kingdom demands very much, but ultimately fails. And yet before anyone gave Jesus anything, the King of Heaven Himself came to give Himself completely for us, assuring us of a heavenly kingdom that we could never lose. 
Jesus testifies to the sovereign authority of God. He testifies against the sin of rulers. And Jesus' testimony is always proven true. The kingdoms of this world uh, will, in full and final measure, become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's the sure truth. And that is proven even in history in a variety of ways. Well, I've outlined the passage and the truths that it summarizes for us, but now you'll say, what does this mean for us in modern America? As I've already said, it is clear that we are to acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty and testify to the world that there is a higher king and a kingdom that never fails. It's clear that any Christian patriot is one who has, you might say, an open-eyed allegiance to his country. That is to say, thankful to be participating in its national life, but also acknowledging our national wrongs and not closing our eyes to them. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, in liberty and law. We used to sing that in school, but I don't think that's sung anymore. Um, There used to be much more common acknowledgement about such things in previous generations and by our politicians and even patriotic songs to say that there is a a higher rule, right? And this be our motto, in God is our trust, and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, that is the truth, and that much I say is clear. But then there is this contention and confusion today regarding what Christians should do in this time of spiritual and moral decline. How are we to address rulers in our day? What, What testimony should we be bringing? What should our posture be toward this world and its civic life? It's a difficult question, I admit. And I'd like to begin by quoting an unlikely source who disagreed with himself, Uh, the Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr. Few people had heard of him before 1979. And let me read you a little of what he said earlier, and you'll know just why he was so unknown. Uh, He he wrote, uh, as far as the relationship of the church to the world, it can be expressed as simply as the three words that Paul gave to Timothy, preach the word. The message, he said, is designed to go right to the heart of man and there to meet his deep spiritual need. Nowhere are we commissioned to reform externals. We're not told to wage war against bootlickers, bootleggers, liquor stores, gamblers, murderers, prostitutes, racketeers, prejudiced persons or institutions or any other existing evil as such. Our ministry is not reformation, but transformation. The gospel does not clean up the outside, but rather regenerates the inside, end quote. This was the sum of his public ministry, if you like, and why he was at that time a completely unknown pastor. But 15 years later, Dr. Falwell disowned those words of his, calling them false prophecy. In his book, Listen America, he wrote a manifesto which set the course for the rest of his life and ministry, with, 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 with which some of us in Virginia are more familiar. There he said, I am speaking to rally together the people of this country who still believe in decency, the home, the family, morality, and the free enterprise system. 
and all the great ideas that are the cornerstone of this nation against the growing tide of permissiveness and moral decay that is crushing our society, we must make a sacred commitment to God Almighty to turn this nation around immediately, end quote. Well, there we go. Two opposite statements. Which do you believe to be right? Which resonates most with you? While Dr. Falwell was no doubt a controversial figure, I have made him controversial with himself today in order that we might uh, have before us the two, I think, most popular opinions on this subject, which I judge both to be partially right and ultimately wrong. And I believe that many of the problems that we face in our dealings with the world result from the kind of oversimplification, one way or the other, that I've just read. Um, The church as a whole is commissioned to reconcile people to God through the preaching of the gospel and to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness in the world as we have opportunity. And every Christian as a citizen, exercises a certain authority as a responsible ruler in this land. Well, at least he exercises a certain authority and responsibility in the government of this land is what I wrote. I think that's better, better said. Every, Christ, every Christian as citizen exercises a certain authority and responsibility in the government of this land. And all rulers including we the people, are called to fear the Lord and to do right, which, of course, includes reforming externals. That's the only thing that rulers really have access to, externals. And that obviously includes electing those who rule in righteousness and using our elective franchise well. It also involves coming up and with and voting for righteous laws and amendments, and we are responsible to make sure those righteous laws are enforced and as a couple in our congregation have done, go to meetings and school board meetings and to remind rulers of uh, what is right because that is the responsibility of citizens in our government. We all bear some measure of civil authority. And as those who have been given authority by God, we are called to do it in righteousness. That is given to us by God, and to God we are accountable to use it rightly. So, was Dr. Falwell right the first time when he said we are not called to wage war against gamblers, murderers, prostitutes, and so forth? Well, in the church, no. But as responsible citizens, yes. That is what responsible citizens in a democratic republic are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to take on criminals, was Dr. Falwell right the second time when he said, against the tide of growing tide of permissiveness and moral decay that is crushing our society, we must make a sacred commitment to God Almighty to turn this nation around immediately? As the church, no, he was wrong. But as citizen members of a church, yes, uh, we, we ought to make a sacred commitment to turn this nation around. When Dr. Falwell says of civil reform, nowhere are we commissioned to reform externals. Well, I think he's wrong on both counts. As far as the church goes, we certainly have read various prophetic testimonies today. 
And we are commissioned to bear witness to the truth, to reprove evil works, to instruct citizens and rulers in their righteous duties, and to declare the whole counsel of God, including civil life. But then as citizens of America, each of us are responsible to go and carry it out. And so God holds the church responsible for informing all of his will, citizens and rulers alike. That especially means me. But God holds all those in authority responsible for taking action or their lack of action. And that means every last one of you. There are times that we must make a sorrowful acknowledgement that Caesar is demanding the place of God. Jesus would not let that pass. And sometimes this even requires suffering, that is to say a, uh, uh, a kind of civil disobedience. Jesus points out, if my kingdom were of this world, my, my, my uh, uh, disciples would fight for my release, right? Uh, it's not of this world. That, that means that we are going to have to suffer for what is right. This is not easy to do, and there are consequences. It's not done in a rebellious attitude. Witness the Lord himself and his re- relatively gentle words on trial. But the early Christians changed the world precisely because so many of them were willing to suffer from it rather than conform to it. They were Rome's best citizens in one, in one way, and it's public enemy number one in another, because they testified there's a higher authority. They wouldn't sacrifice even a pinch of incense to Caesar when it was demanded as as God. Their peaceful and courageous resistance to the ultimate demands of Caesar was their witness to the gospel of the God of love. And this is what supremely converted their neighbors, their communities, even eventually their rulers. And it was a persecuted church that revolutionized the world. It will likely be a persecuted church that revolutionizes the world again and brings back liberty, protection of rights, speech, conscience, and so forth, which rights are God-given. Our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing, long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. Uh, These are the commitments, as I say, not only in um, uh, song, but uh, also in other documents of our past. Well, make sure that no matter how you are engaging in this world, that your trust is anchored in another world. As we are citizens of a better country, Hebrews 11, and we await the risen king and with him new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. This is a sketch of how we are to be engaging today as a church and as Christian citizens. In conclusion, it's clear from the Bible that Jesus' aims were not primarily political, obviously. Not because politics was outside of his sovereign claim or beneath him, but because he understood what people most needed to hear. I am sad to hear many Christians speaking much more today about politics than about Christ. They are much more animated. They are much more bold, much more frequently about the rulers of this world, which are coming to nothing, than they speak about the ruler of nations and the hope of the world whose dominions he possesses. 
Let us remember, Christians are at war. And as people at war, where it's written, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our struggles are not against the rulers or the peoples of this world, but against those uh, high, uh, uh, the, the rulers of this present darkness. And so it is that the ultimate warfare that we must wage and that Christ will win is a spiritual one. Let us commit ourselves to it. Let's pray together. Our great King and Father in heaven, we have seen the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who appoints all the rulers of this world and gives them authority. You are the one who also upholds all things by the word of your power. And as Christ has also purged our sins, he has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and has inherited all nations. As our rock of ages, we have come once again, hiding ourselves in him, and say that though there are remaining for us in this world, perhaps in this nation of ours, many fightings without and fears within, we have great confidence now that Christ is our rock and our hiding place and our shield, and that he who governs the nations, who has all authority in heaven and earth given to him, will in no case leave us or forsake us. We do not presume to know all the purposes that you have in bringing such things to pass as you have in this world, or even appointing its rulers, perhaps some as judgment upon its citizens, as you have so often done. But we have known that you are good, and that your purposes in this world are good, and in faithfulness you afflict. In this age of secularism, when many think that the universe operates merely by laws and random chance, that there is no governor and therefore no purpose, we pray that you would make your good purposes plain to this world, directing all things, that you should be glorified greatly among us, that even the kings of the earth should give you praise as...